house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Guys, you see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. It's like robbing the bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? I got a These are my coworkers. Jobs, please. What if somebody calls the cops and says what? I spent $5,000 at a strip club, sent help. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that wants Judy Dench to screw Ian McKellen's courage to the sticking place. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my hustler at scores, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Uh, I too get more comfortable when wet. Oh my god! <laughs> Never mind. Specific, Never mind. specifically salt water. Nope, we're keeping specifically it. Specifically salt water. <laughs> salt water specifically, I believe, is the line. Yes, God. I watching that again last night. I literally wrote down. I was like, "Swimona happens twenty five minutes into this movie." Like, I genuinely <laughs> like it's so it hits the ground so running by the first twenty five minutes. We've gotten. Uh, J-Lo getting introduced, doing a pole routine to Fiona Apple, then get in my fur, and then, like, in Swamona, all within the first 25 minutes. Like, this movie does not make you wait for it. Breakneck it really... pace. Breakneck pace, exactly. I think by that time, Lizzo's already done a little bit of a flute thing. Um, Cardi has uh, yanked Constance Wu by the hair. Like, a lot <laughs> happens in the early goings of this movie. It's giving. It's giving, and it's giving, and it's giving. It continues to give, too. Like, there's so much that's happening that, like, I I suspected the first time that we saw this movie that I'm like, this is a movie that I'm going to revisit and notice new things every single time I watch yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Like, <laughs> and, it, like, it totally does that. And, like, certain emotional beats still hit me hard every Deeply. single time I watch it. But, like, one thing I know, like, a line that I caught this time that I'd never noticed is that first training session where Cardi V... Cardi B eventually shows up where Ramona is showing Destiny like tricks on the pole and like yeah. different types of moves. And she's trying to get her to do this thing where she's basically perpendicular to the pole. Yes. And she tells her to like, she's like, you almost put your thumb up your butt. You know yeah. how to do that. You got to thumb your butt up there. Like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know how to do that. It's so great. Like, uh, there's 8 billion things to talk about here, and we will try and get to everything. One of them being, though, is Cardi B should be cast in more things, just because I want to like, I want to see phenomenal. what's phenomenal. I want to see what's I mean, there. She's... I love Cardi, period, but, like, it never is lost on me how, like, you know, I mean, this movie has a lot of cameos or, like, very yeah. brief roles, and, yeah. like, everybody like shows up and gives 1000% to this Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. But like even some of those cameos it's just like show up and be fun. Cardi yeah. like runs away with it in the like maybe 4 minutes of screen time. I was going to say has. she doesn't get asked to do a lot. She's in essentially 3 scenes. 
basically. Um, no. Three and a half. Her pulling Constance's hair is, like, that's not much. But, like, in the limited screen time she's ha- she has, she manages to be... I love, by the way, that we're, like, leading our Hustlers discussion with Cardi. Like, okay. Um, I mean, Hustlers began with Cardi because we're going to talk about the phenomenal trailer, which had a Cardi yeah, song in it. That's true. But she manages to be really natural and yet... Like sells some punchlines and like does is not overly effortful. It does not really feel like she's trying to make a joke or or trying to act. It's it's really impressive in a way that like I'm so intrigued. I don't know how much is there, but I want I want to find out. I want somebody. It was to the help smartest thing in the world to cast her in this movie because like she has experience in some of these clubs too. So it's like right. This movie is really great at establishing, like, the ecosystem of it, and in very short order, but, like, populating it with all this life. And, like, my favorite Cardi moment in this movie that is just, like, to me, one of the funniest moments is you have the montage, which I believe is set to Give Me More, and it's, like... That's where you see, like, Lizzo do two seconds of her routine. You see a few of the other dancers who have just been in, like, kind of the background getting a moment to show the scene. So it's, like, a montage of what it looks like in a night. And then you cut to Cardi, who's, like, cussing out a bounce. That's my favorite part, too. She has the one (laughs) line... so funny. ...where she's just, like... Everybody has a job in here. The bouncers, the house moms, everybody but you. All you do is get your fucking dick sucked by the new bitch, you fucking idiots. Get the fucking dick She's talking about how this guy does nothing but let the new girl suck his dick, and she's just, like, fucking idiots. Like, she just, like... She, like, totally, like, transitions (laughs) to, like, fucking idiots don't know what they're doing. Like, it's so great. Um, she's wonderful. This is, you know, an A-plus cast. We're absolutely going to get into... We're going to try and give every member of the main cast of this movie their due, because they deserve it. This was a movie that deeply would have deserved a SAG Ensemble nomination. And I think when we get into talking about why this movie missed out on Oscar, I think one of the big missed opportunities is that, you know, and we can quibble about the strategy of it but at some point the strategy the oscar strategy for this movie was all on the j-lo performance and they really yes there was no sense that this movie was being pushed as a movie and i do wonder if that might have helped things along if voters weren't being asked to essentially make an exception for j-lo that like because like tacitly the campaign for this movie without saying it was like maybe the movie's not your cup of tea but you got to admit j-lo's great and and that's for people who the movie might not have been their cup of tea that's not wrong you know what i mean like that's that's still the correct way to go but like this is a movie that deserved to get respect on its own merits for its writing for its direction for its ensemble cast for its craft uh, accomplishments like top to bottom this movie should have at least i'm not saying this movie deserved like 13 oscar nominations although uh, catch me on a good day and maybe i would you know <laughs> catch what I mean? me on a good day and i, I will also agree with that but, um but this movie I deserved mean, to be considered it goes deeper everywhere. i think than the than just the awards narrative of this movie too because i think there was like a critical you know The people who got this movie and got what is special about this movie and what is smart about this movie, in my in my recollection and in my experience in the moment, were basically women and gay men. And do we have to do everything for the rest of you? Do we really have to? Exactly. 
And, and it's like you see a lot of, I think, a, you know, mainstream, especially straight male critics who are just like, yeah, entertaining movie, blah, 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 but not right. willing to really think about right. the emotional core of the movie, you know, the deeper, like, uh, kind of satirization of the market crash and how, you know, this kind yeah. of reflects a certain type of blue collar worker. And, you know, people were unwilling to even consider it, I think, on a critical level and how it achieves yeah. those things. And it's like you have, you know, uh, homosexuals like you and I loudly beating the drum you? for this movie. How and, dare you? you know, yeah. a few others. Um, we are getting ahead of ourselves as we do. I swear to God, Chris, every time, every week we do this i'm like i should do better at just like letting us ease into an episode and maybe just like you know if there was ever a movie we were just gonna charge out of the gate though we really just like we really never seem to be able to stop just like jumping headlong into a discussion partly because the two of us are pretty scrupulous about not discussing a movie before we uh, get on the podcast so i think by the time we're on here we're just like right. Blah! like i have so much to say. you know weirdly we didn't because like i figured we would just be like talking about this movie all week because like the thing is we're doing an episode on a movie that we probably bring up in conversation to each other yes. at least once a week so uh, i want to do a little bit of two-tiered table setting one of which being i want to talk about the time the time in which this movie came out but first of all i would like you to talk about how this is our listeners choice winner like thank you fans thank you listeners uh thanks guys i uh think as soon as votes started coming in for this it was like oh it's obviously going to be no competition hustlers just like last year when we did this and you know made the listeners choice open open season basically for all of our listeners to pick what we're doing last year the same thing happened with widows we did end up like not even doing a poll on this one because it was such a blow away type of thing and it was so obvious that people want us to talk about this movie but talk Um, about a little bit about what were some of the other movies that at least got like multiple votes or a a little bit of a concentrated attention uh runner up was kenneth lonergan's margaret uh fret not margaret fans we have plans we do um jordan peele's us showed up quite a bit that'll be a fun one to talk about i think in the future Uh, uh, yes, movies with a lot of big followings. I think the most like core this had Oscar buzz, uh, like title that you know got the best in the rankings was actually Amelia in terms of like quintessential. I that. This is what we do here. I noticed that. Um, yeah. So we may have to uh, go back to Hillary Swank in the new year. We are uh, we are going back to the House of Swank. Yes, we will uh, We will definitely do that. Lots to ponder into the new year. It's always good to get a little window into the enthusiasms of our listeners. This was, I mean, we would have done the shipping news eventually, but like to, that was one of the things that I loved about when we eventually did the shipping news was just like, I knew how many of y'all were out there, like secretly pining <laughs> for this like notoriously bad movie that yet is so intriguing to all of us. So this is... This is a good, it's market research more than anything, and we like that. So, And this is certainly an episode that's been long in the making, because we've done this since, uh, we've talked about, well, this podcast has been going longer than right. Hustlers has been with us. So yes. it's like, we had the whole class of uh, 2019 episode that um, 
Yeah, basically, I think I spent the whole time anytime you mentioned Hustlers, me, me being like, I don't want to talk about right. it. Right, we gotta, we gotta wait. Um, I also feel like from the minute that this movie got blanked at the Oscars, Oscar nominations, our listeners were like, so when you eventually get to the Hustlers episode, because like, yes, it was like, you, you, you know us well. It was always coming. And now that our self-imposed year, one year moratorium on the not talking about movies from within the same, from the last Oscar year, we are now clear of it. So that's the other thing I want to talk about though, Chris, is this movie world premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2019. So the fall of 2019. It is my, uh, it is my declaration to you that no period in time feels more remote from from where we are now than late 2019 like fourth oh, quarter yeah, 2019 right before the pandemic it feels that is like the foggiest time it feels like it was a billion years ago everything that happened in that it's not that i don't remember what happened in there but every sort of cultural happening that went down in that little window is refracted in time in a way that, like, I either feel like it just happened or it happened a billion years ago. And I think yep. with Hustlers, it's like, oh, Hustlers has always been with us. We've always had this movie. <laughs> We've been discussing it for decades, and it is a part of our canon. And it just, the fact that that was the last time that you and I saw each other in person, our good friend, um, uh, uh, Katie Rich, recent guest, uh, recent and future guest and money monstrous herself, uh, Katie Rich, um, was in town last week to uh, do some work stuff and see some awards movies. And I got to uh, hang out with her and we had dinner and it was very nice. And we literally at one point were just like, when was the last time we saw each other in person? <laughs> and we were trying to figure it out because the last time she was in New York before the pandemic, I didn't see her because how could I have known that it would have been the last time that I could see friends uh, from out of town for such a long time. And we realized it was also the TIFF 2019. So like truly for a lot of people, that was probably the last time I saw, I saw them in person, certainly my Toronto friends. That is true. And, and again, it's just like, and that contributes to it too, because you and I communicate every day. We are on this podcast yeah. every week. So it's, I don't know, the timing of it is just like, Hustlers seems like it happened forever ago. And yet, sometimes it seems like you and I saw each other just yesterday because we are, you know, so constantly in communication. So it's just like this yes. weird time vortex and nexus. And yet, I will also say, Hustlers at TIFF 2019. And TIFF 2019 was a really good one. I liked it was almost a moment everything too, I saw. It... Mm -hmm. But that screening was so much fucking fun. That room was like vibing with that movie. It wasn't just us. Sometimes you and I will see stuff at TIFF that just you and I feel like we are like operating at a higher level than the audience. The Gloria Bell screening, I feel Gloria like. Gloria Bell, exactly. Like that. <laughs> um but Hustlers, that whole room was on our level. Like, everybody was... I remember mm -hmm. the Miss You Much, uh, when it comes back again, over the end credits, there was a palpable sense of just, like, joy and exuberance and appreciation for the movie. And it was so much fun. You can just feel it in the in the audience, even without, like... It's not like there was a sing-along or a dance-along or anything like that, but just, like, you felt the room vibing. And it was so special. I remember when... Uh... Destiny and Ramona are reunited uh, to the sounds of Club Can't Handle Me. And I start crying and you look over at me like, are you crying? 
and I'm like, Fuck you, yes. Um, no, it, it absolutely one of like, yeah, those very electric screenings, uh, and like we didn't even see the first screening. We weren't there at the premiere, no, but no. it's just like, I don't that felt like one of like in my mind of like when you're there on the ground like the like where the buzz is just at a complete fever pitch while yeah. the festival is going on and we're the crazies who stay through the whole damn festival too so it's like right. hustlers yes. also opened at the end of the festival so it's like we're still riding high on it yes. and then like we're hearing from all these people who are going and seeing it opening weekend right and like freaking out and it's just like yeah it's we, almost like the uh, theatrical and festival release of Hustlers. It was like our usher showing up <laughs> at a club, and it's the last nice thing. In a, in a, yeah, that's true. That's she does say that specifically, just like that that last great night. Um, there are in a movie full of great line readings, just like a plus fantastic line readings. Easily, my favorite is Lizzo with her. Uh, Nothing but pasties on, essentially, and bottoms. Um, <laughs> bitch, motherfucking run, usher is here. Running into the back and going, hey, bitch, motherfucking usher is here. Usher, bitch! Gets out of there. It kills me dead every single time I see it. It's so good. We cannot, we're going to loop back to this because we can't get into it this early in the episode, but there is a like, all-timer line reading that we have to talk about the time the moment in the movie where i thought i was going to be on the floor screaming for this movie <laughs> all right well like, we are rolling in the aisles but we'll come back to it we are at our traditional almost 20 minutes into the episode point where we should probably get to a plot description you are delivering the plot description this week and i'm very excited to hear uh how you sum this one up in a minute uh we're talking about the 2019 movie Hustlers this week, you guys. Our Listener's Choice episode. Thank you, listeners. Uh, directed by Lorene Scafaria, written by Lorene Scafaria, based on the New York Magazine article The Hustlers at Scores by Jessica Pressler, played uh, in this film by Julia Stiles, of course. We'll get into it. Uh, starring Constance Wu, Jennifer Lopez, Kiki Palmer, Lily Reinhardt, Julia Stiles, as mentioned. Oscar winner Mercedes Rule, uh, Cardi B. I love that this movie is with Mercedes Rule and Cardi B, one of the most fantastic with ands in Top film. three with and. Yep, 100%. Uh, Wai Ching Ho, Lizzo, Trace Lissette, Madeline Brewer, Stephen Boyer, and introducing Usher as himself. I know he's been in movies before, I'm just making a joke. Yeah, uh, how dare you disrespect the faculty? Uh, or, or uh, 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 what's you call it? Freddie Prinze Jr., um... Pignalia she's all that. Movie. Yeah, she's he's the that. DJ yeah, and yeah. she's all that. Yeah, I know. He's the one who secretly choreographs that whole fucking thing that everybody talks about all <laughs> that time. everybody learns yeah. how to do Amazing. the Rockefeller skank routine. Yes. Fantastic. That was a trivia question, one uh, one of my trivias, right? Who uh what who did the song that they danced to at the end of She's All That, I believe, right? I'm sure you got it. Uh, anyway. Fatboy Slam, yeah. Yeah, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 7th, 2019. It opened wide one week later on September 13th, 2019. Chris, I'm going to pull up a little phone, a little stopwatch. Give me a second. You'd think I'd be prepared for it this one time, but I'm not. Okay, so I'm going to hit start. You're going to have one minute. Are you ready? Hustlers. I am. Let's and do this. go. 
Okay, we're introduced to Dorothy. She is a dancer in New York City. She works at a uh, strip club where she we will meet several other different characters. Uh, she goes by the name of Destiny. She kind of struggles with it at first, but then she meets Ramona, played by Jennifer Lopez, who is like runs the place. She is amazing. She climbs into her fur, and then they have a unique bond, immediately taking care of each other, but also giving each other tips. Then we slash forward several years, and we realize that Destiny is being interviewed by this uh, reporter, so it tells us that that shit definitely goes down. Um, eventually, they form a bond with a bunch of other girls in the club, but then the market crash happens. Meanwhile, Destiny goes and has a child. The man Lee, or they uh, split up anyway. She's a single mom trying to make it back into the clubs to make money, but it's hard to make money then. She meets Ramona. Ramona's been doing a sting where they're basically luring men into the clubs, drugging them, and then racking up their credit cards. Uh, of course, obviously, that goes sour. Ramona and Destiny split off as friends, and then they all avoid jail sentences because and that's time you know i don't want to say victimless crime i kind of want to like mention that this is one of the things that people had against the movie is like it wasn't they're drugging easy. people and stealing their money it wasn't easy to reconcile people wanted more of a a criminals they could more easily root for in this movie right and i have a lot of thoughts about that and I also do too. And I think partly it's a great piece of adaptation because the movie handles it very well in terms of like yes. talking about how none of these guys want to come forward because they have their own shame, which I about like these women, you know, drugging them in a strip club and, you know, racking up their credit cards and profiting off of it. Yeah. Um, the men have their own shame of that happening to them being in that situation, which I think is very linked to, you know, the type of mindset that, you know, prevented people from taking this movie seriously because it's about, you know, happenings in a strip club. Um, I am really but, reticent. Sorry, finish your thought. Uh, no, I was just going to say in terms of the morality of the movie, I think the movie handles it really really well that they these are these women are you know making a bad decision they're right. doing something wrong yes. but understanding the type of systemic uh issues especially after the market crash um and just what it's like for blue collar workers the type of decisions that they are forced to make and you yeah. know who ultimately suffers for those choices because of course there are certain men that are depicted in this movie that do you know suffer in a way they made yeah they're trying to target men yes. who aren't going to worry about where that ten thousand dollars went but there's a few that they you know yeah get reckless with well but, and if you if you read jessica pressler's article um and it does come across in the movie, so I don't think you need to read the article to understand the movie. I don't think that's one of those situations. But if you read uh, Jessica Pressler's article, a lot of the – she really front loads it with the idea that, like, the hook of this story is both that the – you know, these women came up with a scheme to get rich off of the the guys coming into the strip clubs, but also the fact that so many of these victims were – kind of ob objectively unsympathetic where objectively they she talks about how the women talk about the guys in the strip in the strip club sometimes they'd prefer them to be 
the the worst of the worst, right? The you know disrespectful and gross and and you know rich and you know doing bad things with their money because it made it more satisfying to sort of drain them of their checking accounts of their you know and make them you know make mm-hmm. them spend all this money on them rather than the sort of the sad sacks who didn't have enough money as much money but who they could sort of string along a little bit that there is a sense in this movie that it is i think it would be uh disingenuous of anybody to deny the fact that there is some satisfaction in watching some of these guys, the worst of these guys, get taken for a ride. And I think what's interesting about the movie and the way that Scafaria handles it is she rides you down that slippery slope so gradually that by the time you get to the stuff where they are, you know, where guys are getting, you know, going to the hospital or getting like really seriously adversely drugged, or when you get to the Stephen Boyer character, who is somebody who could not afford to be taken for a ride in the same way that other some of these other guys did. And he's got a family and he's got a kid and he's got, you know, a life job because they use his corporate card. Right. And so, but by that point you've gone, you've gone down the slippery slope that you're sort of in it with these women. And it's interesting to me that, and this was not, I don't think this was widespread and I don't think it's as clear cut as, you know, all, you know, all male critics reacted to it in such a way. I think there were, you know, plenty of of male critics who took this movie for what it was. But I think with a certain segment or with a certain number of people who it's about like, wh- who am I identifying with in this movie? And if your identification is with like, oh, what if I was one of these people who wasn't that bad of a guy, but I still got taken for a ride? How awful would that be? Rather than, and I think for people like say us or for a woman who's watching the movie you're not automatically going to go there you know what i mean you're mm-hmm. you're when you place yourself in this story you're not placing yourself in that in Stephen Boyer's shoes you're placing yourself maybe in Constance Wu's shoes and not you know i don't know from stripping it's not you know that what Lorraine i mean Scafaria but doesn't you know create some empathy for especially absolutely you know, some of these guys too because like that's what this movie is like mm-hmm. this movie is a movie that has incredible amount of compassion for its characters. But that's, I think, the thing that made me so, like, vociferously angry um, whenever I saw people being like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. A, first of all, um, a movie doesn't need to be moral to do what it needs to do. Second of all, it's just like, I feel like if you are leaning towards the empathy of the mm-hmm. other people, I feel like you didn't watch of these men. I don't feel like you watched the fucking movie. <laughs> like, also, where is this compassion for the people who Tony Soprano, you know, takes out back? You know what I mean? Like, right. You're, you're able to watch those shows and those movies and understand that these are people doing a bad thing and not get hung up on the fact that, oh, but those poor victims, I don't think the movie is sufficiently sympathetic to the victims. And it's just like, the movie's not about them. But this is also specifically a movie about how these characters are led to those decisions who are led to doing criminal acts because, like, that's what the system has kind of nudge them to do in order to survive like there's ample room for different types of exploitation and like 
we saw, like, you know, it's a very specific industry. And I think the movie, like, paints the industry very well in terms of, like, getting us to understand how it functions and how it was affected by the market crash, you know. And, like, and then ultimately what it means for the characters, too. Well, I don't need to feel like I'm going to vote for Ramona for president. But when <laughs> when she gives that that uh, monologue to uh, Dorothy about you know look at what these guys did to the country look at the the you know pension funds that they raided look at the regular people who they bankrupted and not a single one of them went to jail and of course this is a frame we've a refrain we've heard a lot in the last decade but it mm-hmm. doesn't make it any less true and it's like tell me you're not on her side in that. Like, honestly, tell me that you don't feel like... Because her thing isn't... This whole country is a strip club. Right. Her thing isn't necessarily, like... I don't think she's trying to be, like, we are, you know, making a political statement or we are making, you know, a stand for the little guy. What she's saying is, don't ask me to feel sorry for these guys. And ultimately, that's a very morally complicated statement, but it's hard to not sympathize with her a little bit, you know? Well, and it it makes the kind of, not just the morality, but, like, the political, the, uh, a lot of the layers of this movie way more interesting than, like, a movie teaching us a lesson. And, like, even that final monologue from Ramona, I feel like, is the only time in the movie that it's explicitly kind of drawing a financial parallel or, you know, a sociopolitical parallel, like, making it literal in this movie. And I think because of that, and it saves it for the very end of the movie, it can get away with it. It's almost like I... because it's produced by Adam McKay, and apparently they'd, you know, because Lorene Scafaria, for her own script, you know, had to really fight to be in yes. the director's chair, too. Yeah. And it's like, you can imagine the Adam McKay version of this movie where, like, every scene is that scene, you know, telling us right. what sure. to, how to interpret this story because we couldn't possibly be smart enough to do it ourselves. Um, well, and the other thing is, you get that one scene, but all around that is it's this this ecosystem is being described for you anyway, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like who are these people who can afford to drop hundred thousand dollars in a night at a script at a strip club? Like it's nothing to, you know, to treat these women as if they are something, you know, that they can just sort of just, like, throw money on a table for and whatever. And, like, what kind of money must you be making to do that? What kind of regard for that money? Do you know what I mean? Just, like, at some point when yeah. it's when it's something you can just sort of throw down on a night, the obscenity of that wealth. You know what I mean? The absolute yeah. obscenity of acquiring that wealth and what you have to do. And, and it's – it again, it's just – and this is all wrapped up in a super fucking fun movie where, again, Lizzo says, Usher, bitch. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> this is not a treatise. This is not a homework assignment. But it is, and this is why it got compared to Magic Mike, I think, in a lot of ways, was uh-huh. in this, you know, beautiful candy shell of this story about a group of strippers who like hatch a plan, which like just that log line enough. I'm in, you know what I mean? Group of strippers hatch a plan. (laughs) Boom. There's my money. But within that, there is commentary. There is context. There is, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, 
it's really it's really fascinatingly done. But you you open the door a bit to the production history of the movie, which I think is really interesting because this article, the Jessica Pressler article, and I'm looking it up right now because I don't want to get it wrong, uh, was published. Well, now I'm looking at the article and it doesn't have a date stamp on it. So thank you very much, New York Magazine Web. Archive. 2015. Thank you. Um, articles published in 2015, almost immediately. Uh, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's production company is looking to turn it into a movie. And you're right. Adam McKay is one of the people who might want to direct it. They also, at one point, were looking at Martin Scorsese, who ended up uh, passing on it. And it's interesting to me because in the last... I mean, Scorsese's had a long Oscar history dating back to, you know, Taxi Driver in the 70s and whatnot. But especially lately, he's been pretty reliably Oscar intensive, right? He's, you know, Hugo gets a bunch of nominations. Wolf of Wall Street gets a bunch of nominations. The Irishman. He's not winning Best Picture, but like he's a pretty reliable bet to get a Best Picture nomination. As is, as of late, Adam McKay with the big mm-hmm. short and vice. And now all of a sudden don't look up is getting all of this Oscar buzz. And I wouldn't count on it. Well, we'll see We're we're still in the early stages. I but mean, at the yeah, very least, we'll see, but like pe- people who know better than me are calling it a, uh, a lock for a nomination. And so, um, if I, if, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, um, blame them, not me. But what I'm saying is these two guys who like, Maybe there's a version of Hustlers that gets made by one of them that gets nominated for Best Picture in 2019 because of that cachet. And I like this. There's, you know, eight billion different wormholes in that argument because Scorsese also has the Irishman that year. So what does he make and what does he not make? Whatever. What I'm saying is there's a version of this movie that gets made by one of them that is maybe more Oscar palatable because of their track record and standing in the Academy. I'm and it's very... maybe more familiar to a movie we've seen before. Well, like... right. So, yeah. And so what I'm saying is I will happily sacrifice that. I will happily have Hustlers with zero Oscar nominations. If... And be the better movie. And be the Lorene Scafaria version of this movie. Because I think that's important. And again, I'm just, you know, dumb me watching the Oscars. Obviously, Jennifer Lopez <laughs> may, might feel differently about uh, the, you know, the benefit of getting an Oscar nomination and maybe a win. But... Maybe Jennifer Lopez doesn't end up starring in that movie, you know, otherwise. I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know, it's it's a lot of what-if scenarios. But I'm glad we got the movie that we got, regardless of what happened on Oscar nomination morning for it. Yeah. Um, well, because, I, I don't know, Lorene Scafaria, which is like, also, because of the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay producing partnership of this we also just got like one of the best succession episodes that she directed the too much birthday boys sad birthday party um good lordy basically magic mountain on mdma (laughs) um what was that fucking treehouse only cool people are allowed in here oh my god she she blew that shit out of the water that episode is incredible that she directed one of the things in that episode that reminded me a little bit about hustlers is uh uh barry schneiderman the uh the woman that uh that kendall hires at the beginning of the season to essentially do his uh media strategy um the one who he says i just want cool tweets um the one who (laughs) it's her and comfrey we i know everybody was talking about comfrey but um yeah um 
who at one point just sort of has this look on her face that she's just like, I'm planning this guy's, I'm running this guy's, this idiot's birthday. Like, this is what I have to do. This is the job that I have. And it, and it made me think of, you know, hustlers in a way of just like catering to the whims of these people with way too much money must really like do some shit to your brain, like do some shit to your psyche. And absolutely. And, you know, yeah, fantastic episode. Lorraine Scafaria is a really fascinating uh, talent in Hollywood. And I really love talking about her in part because at the very beginning, the very first movie of hers I saw was Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. She had uh, she had been a writer for, was she a co-writer for Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, I imagine? Um no, she's that sole screenplay credit for Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which I did really like. Um, I didn't love Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. I don't know about you. Where were you at when you saw that it's, movie? I mean, like, it's kind of doing a, a bunch of different things. Like, Steve Carell and Kira Knightley kind of have this odd chemistry that's not mm-hmm. satisfying, but maybe isn't supposed to be. It's... Like, it's definitely, like, kind of trying to do some ambitious things in terms of, like, I don't want to say likability. That just sounds so cheap. But undermining the type of, like, relationship dynamics, screen chemistry in a movie like this. Because it's basically a romantic comedy, but it's also kind of science fiction. Right. uh, Because it's literally about the end of the world. Um it doesn't really ever like come together for me until the very end, and then I find the very end like pretty emotionally affecting. So I give it, I yeah, give it that. Um, and the the things that are like imperfect about it by the end feel intentional. Sure, sure, sure. You know, it's certainly yeah. imperfect about that relationship on screen and mm-hmm. how it, it, they're written. Yeah. Um, I don't think it fully works, but it is a movie that I'm like fascinated by in terms of her filmography because yep. like her three movies couldn't be more different when you actually like sit and talk about them. Totally. So yeah, her the middle... second, however, yeah. hopefully we will do someday. This the meddler I see at TIFF in 2015, and it was one of it was so unheralded and nobody was talking about it. And at that point, um. I think even by that point, people were annoyed with Susan Sarandon because of the Bernie versus Hillary stuff. Yeah. Um, and as we've said before on Mike, she has always been a jerk. <laughs> like that, that whole thing was not new. Right. She's and, been doing that type of thing since the nineties. Right. And also like, I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? It's just like, ultimately whatever y'all, y'all are real free. Feel free to give a shit. I don't. Um, if in 2021 people are still pointing towards Susan Sarandon in all of yeah. the shit that went down, yeah, please move on. Readjust your focus. Yes. Um, but so there was no light on that movie. I basically saw that movie because I had a you know opening in my schedule, and of course I'm a you know lifelong Susan Sarandon fan, and I also really loved uh, Rose Byrne, and so of course I'm going to go see this movie. And it felt like I was one of the few people who did see that movie um, uh, at that festival. And I liked it, but it's absolutely a movie that really blossomed for me on, um, on rewatch and on just like the more I thought about it in my head. And 
It really you have a spiritual kinship to it because Susan goes to the movies at the Grove. Susan Sarandon in that movie, her character, based on Lorraine Scafaria's own mother, uh, this is definitely her most personal project of the three movies that she's directed, um, is the only person in real life or fiction who loves the Grove more than I do. And it's <laughs> every time I go there, now that I've seen that movie, I sort of mentally sort of like put myself in her in her position and it's just like i imagine myself as having my like marnie and the meddler um uh, fantasy like that's sort of my day that i'm having and i ultimately (laughs) it's one of my best days um and that was a movie that appreciation for that movie was a real slow burn our friend and former guest uh richard lawson named it his best movie of 2016 and i remember that like that was not a movie that was showing up on top 10 lists that wasn't like that was no. not a mainstay on top 10 lists and i remember being so delighted that that was richard's number one movie because it was just like i love a top 10 list that as somebody who myself like i tinker with my top 10s all the time i'm very studious about it i'm very much uh trying to have a list that is really indicative of my passions for that year and i love a list (laughs) that really feels like like that movie was his number one because he loved it the best and be damned oscar campaigns or other people having another top 10 list or like you know importance or anything like that it's just like nope that was his number one and and it is a movie that has absolutely grown in my heart uh, over the years. And every time I watch it, I just feel so delighted. It is. It was part of that kind of micro genre of uh, grandma movies, sort of actress of a certain age movies. <laughs> the movie Lily Tomlin and Grandma. Literally the movie Grandma. Uh, Blythe Danner in... Um, I'll See You in My Dreams. In Love my that dreams. movie. Yes. Um, it is... The- there was another one. What was the other one? There was another one. I'm not going to think of it right now. It was Phil. Well, I mean, I guess it's the year after it did, or the year after Philomena. Right. And it did feel like Sam Elliott wasn't all of them in, in the meddler. Sam Elliott is played by JK Simmons. Um, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> That's very true. I guarantee I do you think that. Go ahead. Much like hustlers, the meddler is the type of movie that you hear the log line for it and you have a mental idea in your head, but like Lorene Scafaria does explore those concepts with a lot Mm. more emotional depth than both the movies have been given credit for, but also then I think, you know, people who want to reduce it down to sad old lady movie or stripper movie would ever think are going to be in those movies. What if (laughs) you just, when you said sad old lady movie or stripper movie, I was like, what if they were both the same movie? What if, Well, I mean, in this movie, you got poor Mercedes Rule stuck uh, instead of taking care of the girls backstage. She eventually is just serving Red Bulls to people. What a sad, what a sad little commentary. Like the the disdain on her face when she's like another Red Bull for you. Um, (laughs) If ever in my life I have Mercedes Rule come into a room where I'm getting changed and bring a chocolate cake, I will know that I have... uh, that I have done my life right. What a moment. What a moment. In the, that Mercedes Rule brought Cardi B a slice of cake in a movie. And we all need to be <laughs> thankful for that. With Mercedes Rule and Cardi B. With, yeah, that's what it was. It's, and a chocolate and a good looking chocolate cake, too. God damn it. <laughs> all right. Um, 
we are 45 minutes into this episode. We need to get to Jennifer Lopez. We really do. Okay. It's- We'd heard. I mean, like, people started to see because of, like, interviews and such. We'd heard the buildup. This was after the trailer had premiered, but people start to see it, like, maybe a month before <coughs> TIFF. And we had heard that there was a shot of Jennifer Lopez on the top of a roof that would, like, blow your mind. And, like, did we not... We did not know that it would also be the cherry on top of a sequence that, like, blows the roof off the place. She shows up, enters the movie with a dance routine set to none other than Fiona Apple's Criminal, which was Jennifer Lopez's idea for a song. One of, like, I don't care what movies you like or what genres you're into, that is a top five all-time entrance, character entrance in a movie ever. That is absolutely, she's giving stardom, she's giving, you know, icon, and performs this, like, incredibly physically demanding routine. The camera does not leave the stage. Like, that's what I love about how Scafaria films that scene. She doesn't, there's no cuts to the other guys and watching other people react to her. We but there are, are cuts to Destiny. And Destiny, yes. Destiny, the second Destiny sees her, she falls in love with her. And that's and what like, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a courtship almost. Yeah. Well, the, uh, Destiny's already been set up really well so far mm-hmm. in terms of getting our empathy, too. And it's like, we fall in love with Ramona at the same exact moment that Destiny does. Yes. And that is, I think, one of the best things about that. If sequel. you ever want to but do like, like a video essay on like what the term gaze, uh, G-A-Z-E, <laughs> means in, uh, in film... That scene. That scene especially. Yeah. Who is whose perspective do we see and whose don't we see? And I love that. Um, yeah, this that whole scene is from the perspective of Destiny. And um, I love that you called out that we don't really have these cutaways to the men in the audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I feel like mm-hmm. it's also a sequence that, like, in very short order is, like, one-upping itself. Uh, the first of which is, like, when that needle drop hits, we're like, what the fuck? Yep. And then she comes out and, like, is in that outfit, is basically naked, mm-hmm. and we have the Destiny stuff layered in there. The whole sequence ends. She has that amazing line of, doesn't money make you feel horny? Yep. And then cut to her smoking on the roof well, in the New York City skyline in a giant fur. Before we get to that, though, I want to just shout out the... The art direction of the stripping scene, the way, just the sheer amounts of money that is on that stage, which I think How is so can crucial she to it. Walk on it, and How again, is she not slipping and falling and dying. And again, there's so much money. This is through Dorothy's uh, perspective, Destiny's perspective. So, like, of course, like in her mind, like that, it's how do you not pay attention to the money as well, right? It is literally, it is thick on the stage like you are walking through a half a foot of snow, right? And, like, that's the degree to which, like, there is just cascading money around. There's more than she could possibly... She, like, Ramona walks off of the stage clutching a giant pile of money to her chest, and it's not a tenth of the money that's on the stage still. Like, it's so much money. Um, But then, yes, so then we're up on the roof... It's Ramona in her fur. She's giving young Deuteronomy. It's very, uh, <laughs> like, she's, Not that, she's no. resplendent. She's sort of like, she's, she's lounging. <laughs> um, and again, 
one of the great lines in this movie, which is climb in my fur, which is that's your thesis of the movie. That's your thesis. It is yeah. a jungle cat, right? It is a a a alluring predator, right? Who says to uh, a little cub, come in, you know, climb in my fur and we'll do this. Well, We're it's this the together. flip side to those images of destiny watching her because like mm-hmm. in that moment we get, uh, you know, we are following in love with her with destiny. But then in this climb in my fur moment, she's also like inviting the audience in yep. to like fall in love with her. And then of course it's like, it becomes this moment that's incredibly affectionate. Um, yes. That, you know, of course, kicks off their relationship together. But like, it's also, and it gives you a little hint of, um, almost like behind the scenes practicality, which is the mm-hmm. glamour of these strippers, the glamour of J Lo as she's like just the the perfection of her body and her you know musculature and the way she can move around on that stage. And then in that next scene, it acknowledges the fact that it must be fucking cold as shit if you are up on that roof with just whatever you're stripping in so it's just like yeah come into my fur because otherwise you will freeze it's so fucking cold right so it's just like it's a little bit of acknowledgement of like yes we're giving you the fantasy but we are also acknowledging the reality we are acknowledging well it's one of those things that like is unexpected and one of the things that i find very moving when i watch the movie still is that like as lorene scafaria is building this world she is constantly like underscoring that these are people who ultimately take care of each other and like are working in an industry like you know i've i've seen people call like this like blue collar workers and i think that that's what it is like like it made me really think of like when i was still working in the retail industry cursed times but like yeah when you are at that part of the economic food chain professionally Mm -hmm. even in incredibly like tense or like uncomfortable situations like uh, i you know not like i have awful men at a strip club right experience but like people do take care of each other um in ways that like are not front-facing to the public right um and like it's just one of the i think it's one of the things that sets this movie aside that it doesn't really get the credit for and why this movie is so good <laughs> is how it kind of establishes the emotional stakes and like the emotional support systems yeah. you know when you're at the end of the economic food chain you know or like towards the back end of the economic food chain you know what i love about this movie one of the many things that i love about this movie is you'll get a bunch of scenes where it's like ramona and destiny or when it's later and it's you know kiki palmer and lily reinhardt and all of them sort of going shopping right and they're shopping for these expensive shoes and coats and bags and whatnot and you'll get these like moments of like getting a little bit of like hesitation or side eye from the clerks there or whatever but you don't get that like and you know no shade against either pretty pretty woman or julia roberts but you don't get that like big mistake huge scene um Mm -hmm. it's just like jennifer lopez is just like what are you looking at ring it up and like that's it that's all you need and that's all you need is this acknowledgement that just like these women even with all of this money are you know facing an uphill climb towards respect and you don't need to have you know, a big 
monologue breakdown in the middle of a store demanding that respect. It's literally just like Jennifer Lopez being like, take my fucking card. Like, you know, and it's, <laughs> oh, it's great. It's so great. But let's, so Jennifer Lopez by this point, because you're right that there was some advanced buzz after the trailer came out. But even when, I remember when the trailer first came out and I was not alone, so I'm not trying to like claim credit here, but I literally saw that trailer and I was like, Jennifer Lopez is going to win an Oscar. And I was like, and I said it and I was like, I don't know how true this is going to be, but if it happens, I want to be here on the ground floor. And I remember being like, it was even from that trailer, you just looked at it and it was just like, this is, this is a star, you know, performance. And it, and what then you did was you took a second and you were just like, wait a second. The timing in this could not be more perfect, right? Because by that point, we were 20 years into the Jennifer Lopez experience of Jennifer Lopez being a famous celebrity. Uh, obviously, 25-ish. Well, 1997 was selena right so i feel like we that i'm safe to say like before that yes in living color okay. and yes like whatever but like 1997 is selena 20 you know 2019 is so it's just like yeah a little bit over 20 years and comes onto the scene with selena in 97 and then gets the golden globe nomination for that follows that up with out of sight which she gets phenomenal reviews in a movie that was like well reviewed anyway it was like seen it was it took a little bit of like a slow burn, just but only mostly because I don't think it made a lot of money at the box office, if I could right. be mistaken. But like it did not take long for like Jennifer Lopez was getting best in show reviews from that one, from that movie. And all of a sudden, back to back, we have this like she's one of the most exciting young new actresses in Hollywood. And then the very next year she pivots to a music career that from her perspective doesn't seem like that much of a pivot. That was always something that she, you know, had in her mind, right. To be this sort of, she was a singer and a dancer and an actress kind of a thing. And, but that pivot to a pop career at a moment where pop was huge, like was really cresting. This was mm-hmm. Britney and Backstreet and, and Sync and Christina. Like this was the era. And yet it was a real bullet train to the type of respect that you were getting as an actress. Now you have surrendered that because you have decided to throw your lot in with Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and, you know, Brian Luttrell and whatnot. Um, like you're now here, you're in this box. And so an incredibly, like, no matter how successful, it was almost like an inverse, right? The more successful she became as a pop star, the less respect she would get as an actress. And Well, and her biggest movie roles, too, were, like, romantic comedies. This is the, the other type thing. of thing that people right. love to, especially in the early 2000s. You know, like, those movies were kind of sneered at, even well, when they made a bunch of money. Right, and, like... I'm of two minds because like, I'm not going to get up here and tell you that the wedding planner and well, all right, this is an, okay. This is an exercise of this like era of Jennifer Lopez rom-coms. What are the good, what are, where, where, how do you rank them? What are like, what are your picks of, of that era? I mean, I guess this is a little bit, 
Uh, this is maybe a few years down the road of the era we're talking about. But, like, what one am I picking out of the pile to put on first? Monster-in-Law. Yeah, same. That's the same. Um, and I feel like I can't, with a straight face, be like, justice for the wedding planner. Justice for Made in Manhattan. Justice <laughs> for the backup plan. You know what I mean? Just like... However, <laughs> maybe not justice for, but... Uh, don't read the plot synopsis. Uh, get a few of your friends drunk and everybody watch second act. Oh, like, oh, and I mean, late late stage J-Lo is almost like a different thing. But I'm like, from like yes. 2000 to 2010, like that decade, right? Which is like, essentially the decade that took Jennifer Lopez from out of sight acclaim to the backup plan sort of bargain basement, you know, as a movie yeah. star, right? And in that, she's also making movies like Angel Eyes and Geely, like a notoriously, like notoriously bad movie in Geely. Um, even stuff where she's like trying to um, get a little bit of respect, like An Unfinished Life, which we talked about on this podcast. Um, uh, uh, El Cantante and Border Town, where it's like her and, and, and Mark Anthony and she's producing things and, and it all sort of falls flat. I will forever stick up for Enough, of course. Um, enough is a what a good time. Cool movie. Like, I really like that movie. But, like, this is a decade that, you know, again, the pop success goes up and the the respect within the film community and the quality of, I would say, it's fair to say, uh, her movies goes down. And so, then... Lest we forget, though, that she is the star of The Cell. We have to mention we the have to mention. Love the Cell. Yes. Uh, which, but, like, that's not really a role that serves her. No. But, like, no. she wears some iconic Aiko Ishioka costume. Yes. So, like... And again, but again, because that's 2000, like, the rest of the decade kind of swallows that up, too. Even, you know, for... Yeah. You're not really thinking, like, oh, well, Jennifer Lopez is at least in, like, cool projects like The Cell. Like, by the end of that decade, you're not really thinking that anymore. So then the 2010s is a really kind of odd decade for her where she it feels like she's figuring out what's my next act no pun intended um going to be right am i going to be an american idol judge am i going to be mostly a producer she starts producing a lot of things at this stage um am you know what's my singing career going to look like am i going to do spanish language stuff she tries some of that am i going to be more of a like uh edm voice you know in in more like like overtly dance dance music uh, dance yeah. music what like what is what are what am i am i just a voice in in animated stuff you know what i mean she had done stuff like that and um and the movie roles were sort of fewer and far between she's in you know what to expect what you're expecting and nobody likes that she's in the boy next door which i fucking love and is a good fucking time at a movie but like is not a very well <laughs> that's a get movie. drunk with your friends movie that movie's 100%. crazy that but like those are the movies she's making is like you gotta watch this movie and have a good fucking cocktail in your hand when you do it lila and eve second act boy next door right like that's <laughs> those are the, those are the movies she's right. making and so by the end of that decade i think the jennifer lopez that we knew both as an actress and a pop star, was a little bit in the rear view. And there's a little bit of nostalgia there of, wait a second. And there's, again, a thing that we tend to do a lot in culture now is we'll reappraise things from not that long ago, right? We'll reappraise, you know, we'll give something a reappraisal that's only maybe five years old. And 
I think by that point, a lot of people were looking at Jennifer Lopez and being like, did we really appreciate what she was giving us as a star as a, like, you know, when we're, when we're a little bit of distance away from Benifer, which we'll talk about that. And, and <laughs> when we've got some distance from Geely and when we've got some distance from even, you know, you know, her time on American Idol and whatnot. And it's like, what, what did we have in Jennifer Lopez and what could we still have in Jennifer Lopez? And so then hustlers comes along at this like beautiful moment where Jennifer Lopez is turning 50 and she's still like, she still got it. And I mean that in like 8 billion different contexts, right? She still got it talent wise, physically hustle, no pun intended. You know what I mean? And, and all of a sudden now we're entering into this new decade of Jennifer Lopez. And I think the, Pro- the the pump was primed for not only big successes but the culture to be really like welcoming of J like J Lo's fucking back and Hustlers comes along and like delivers on that in a way that I think exceeded a lot of our expectations which were already a little trending upwards. If you know what I mean. I mean, the whole, like, star persona, too. Like, it's an incredibly... Just to talk about her, like, star persona in this role. Like, if you followed her for a long time, it's an incredibly rewarding watch. Because it's just, like, she's never been more correctly cast. She's, like... You can tell that she knows that and that she's, like, really running with it. And, like, Mm -hmm. you know finding these character nuances that like some of the movies like the boy next door are not the type of things where she's given the opportunity to do that in a long time. So it's like on top of the movie being very good, it's very rewarding to see this type of star performance that we don't get very often. Well, and it's also a thing that capitalizes on again, a reappraisal of all of the things, or at least a lot of the things that, we kind of, and I, when I say we, I mean the culture, I'm not necessarily meaning you and me, um, kind of bagged on her for, where it's, she had gotten a reputation as being a diva, and in Hustlers, she's a fucking boss. She had gotten, like, like think about how much ink, like, her butt got in those early days of just, like, you know, redefining the, you know, body image stuff and just like so much focus on her curves and her butt and hustlers is just like the grammys dress created google images right right (laughs) like like all of that and 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 she was a sensation for it but we also you know the culture kind of mocked her for that and in hustlers it celebrates that in such a huge way and it lets her own that it gives her ownership of that and um a lot of like the tabloid stuff with her, you know, from her relationship with Puffy to her relationship with Ben Affleck. And in this movie, this movie is just like, yeah, you try taking your eyes off of her, essentially, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like, of course, we've been paying attention to her this whole time. Wouldn't you like look at her? You can't like she's magnetic. And so Hustlers really allows her to own all of that narrative all at once. And so it's not only this like great performance, it's a perfect movie star moment, but it's also, it's a culmination of two decades of stardom all in this one performance. It is a perfect cultural moment. I can't like, you couldn't have crafted it any better. I mean, right. So, (laughs) Which is which then I think leads into a little bit of my not a little bit, probably a lot of my annoyance in 
ultimately the fact that she doesn't end up getting an Oscar nomination. Because if you look at, and again, I don't, I really don't want to play like if this were a man card because like it, it gets really reductive. But the ingredients that she has going into uh, the Oscar campaign of 2019, where not only is it a great performance that critics loved, it is uh, the sort of it's the narrative that it puts on her career is impeccable. Like it's like we talk about how Oscar really loves sort of career narratives where you are, you know, you're cresting and you're giving your mm-hmm. you've reached this like culmination point of your career. Oscar tends to love that. It is there's physical accomplishment stuff. Oscar loves when an actor will put themselves through a physical ringer for a role. And like look at all that like she didn't just like show up on that pole in a day. Like she worked for that. She trained for that. There were, you know, uh, videos and interviews about how hard when she they choreographed it she's like we're gonna do this so that they can see my face so that they know that it's me they know it's not a body double they know and i mean and that's again and it's part of the text of the movie when you know when destiny is just like what if i don't have the muscles to do that and she's just like every woman has the muscles to do that like she's and it's just like and it makes you focus on the fact that like the muscular control and power to be able to do what is, you know, in many ways thought of as just like, you know, oh, it's a girl on a pole, you know, whatever. It's like, it's tossed off. And yet it's like, no, this is like, this is dancing. And her career is a dancer. Like, all of this stuff, even the fact that she was campaigning and supporting. And I'm like, there have been, like, I wouldn't necessarily call it category fraud, but like, you could make the case for her as a co-lead in this movie. Like, you, like yeah. her in supporting, this is like a really significant supporting role. So there's even like the whiff of category fraud, which tends to help in in these situations and the fact that none of it especially if you are a large name like yeah i mean that same year right was you know and no shade at all to tom hanks in a beautiful day in the neighborhood but like that certainly helped him get that oscar nomination right and so i mean i think that's a supporting performance too but um but he but he but he's a big name you know what i mean in in a supporting category so um all of these things tend to be ingredients that would go into a really a bulletproof oscar campaign and the fact that it didn't beyond the fact that it's such a great performance from a great movie and a celebrity who i you know really love is a fucking bummer and yeah the see this was i think our initial hesitation when the nomination didn't happen is like we don't necessarily want to talk this movie because like it's such a bummer it has like the entire right formula for success yeah but like ultimately at the end of the day it seems like one of those movies where we're going to back ourselves into an argument that is basically the oscars aren't cool enough to nominate this and that's I do actually think it's a little true about this movie, but it's not just the Academy's fault. It was like the way that this movie was talked about. Like it was yes. like, well, uh, this movie wasn't given enough credit for even its success. Right. Like, it's and like Jennifer Lopez movie. wasn't given enough credit for this movie's success too, because this movie made a hundred yep. million dollars yep. at a time where everybody wants to complain that movies for adults that like, yep. Granted, this isn't entirely original. It's from an article, but like it's not IP, right? And like nobody, <laughs> if it nobody was, wanted to give this movie any credit, or Jennifer Lopez for and Constance Wu for being yeah. the star of this movie and getting it to the finish line from an independent distributor. Yep. 
That's the other thing is Annapurna uh, essentially bails on this movie halfway through because they were going through their own problems. STX ends up uh, distributing it. And I mean, I guess no shade to STX. Uh, They are not. I mean, they have more Oscar success and have gotten closer than like Bleecker Street has. Sure. So it's like it's not like it's impossible, but like they're not entirely fluid. STX has had movies with promise before that they hadn't been able to do much with. I think it's, you know, I think a more savvy uh, distributor maybe is able to get Jessica Chastain something for Molly's game. I think even something like the upside, which like nobody really, nobody really loved that movie in our circles, but like there have been other movies. They could have made money. They could have. Well, didn't that movie make money? It did make money. That's the thing. It made a lot of money. And it was based on a, you know, something that had gotten, that had existed within sort of the Oscar sphere. And ultimately, like, they weren't able to mount a campaign for it. So, um, but I think a lot, a big part of the problem is, as I said before, the rest of the movie gets gets discarded in the campaign. And it's just a Jennifer Lopez Lopez campaign. And as we've seen with the Oscars through the years, and especially lately, now that we're in the top 10 era, it's very hard to get an acting nomination. If your movie is not in the best picture discussion, they basically, the, the, the nomination tally every year, basically allots for one or two such people. And like, that's basically it. If your movie is not at least in like the top 12 discussion, you're, you're not going to get an acting nomination. It's just like we're. It's really wild that like this movie really didn't even generate much adapted screenplay conversation. Which I'm like, it, it, you're you're right to say that like part of the reason why you know Jennifer Lopez probably didn't get it ultimately is because they were only talking about her performance and only her performance was getting pushed. But like they could have gotten that adapted screenplay nomination, you know, and like to help bolster it. But like. That was one particular, I mean, like, I, not to be one of those people that just reduces a female-directed thing to the screenplay, which we're going to see again this year with Maggie Gyllenhaal, I think, but, like, that would have been an easy get. Well, and it's things like And, like, it's just, there was never an effort put in. Costumes, art direction, like, things like that. Like, there are... Cinematography, editing. Exactly. And so, that being said... The Jennifer Lopez campaign also kind of does everything right. First of all, she was like a fantastic presence on the campaign trail. Like that was, I want, if there was a Hall of Fame for junkets, like the Hustlers junket belongs in the Hall of Fame. That was just, I I can picture (laughs) the sort of, uh, was this kind of like this like pleather burgundy beret she was wearing uh, during mm-hmm. that one junket, of course, we all remember Chris. Before this episode started, I was like, "Do you have the video of?" So wait a minute, actresses. So wait a minute, actresses. I literally was like, "Do you have the actresses, actresses video?" And you knew exactly what I was talking about. Thank oh you. Oh my god, I was so nervous. Well, and pro- she was such a trooper and so amazing. I feel like we bonded in that moment. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I had a respect for you." Yeah. After that, that <laughs> was like, I was like, "Yes, we gangster. gonna do this movie." So wait a minute, yeah. actresses. When y'all be when y'all be acting like y'all be fighting, y'all be really fighting. Yeah, well. There's a, a way to do it. Me. Yeah, you have to. But you have to, you have to. You have to do it real. Right. But you also have to be careful. I was like, it's on my phone. 
Um, Cardi B, listening uh, to them talking, listening to Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu talking about a scene where their characters were fighting and how... Having a physical altercation in the movie. And Constance got bonked on the face for real with a phone, and so Cardi uh, expressed her incredulity that, you know, that are you really fighting? When y'all fighting? When y'all fighting, are you really fighting? It was so good. I love her so much. <laughs> Constance jumping in. Well! Well, yeah, it's great. Um perfection fantastic one of fantastic my favorite pop culture moments. yes fantastic campaign work by jennifer lopez also she had lined up already had lined up the super bowl halftime show her and shakira one mm-hmm. of the great like maybe my favorite super bowl halftime show of this like pop divas um on the halftime show era like i know i know the danger i walk in when i don't rank beyonce as number one in something but like this is this to me was better than Beyonce, was better than Madonna, was better than Katy Perry, was better than all of them. Um, it was absolutely my favorite. And it should have come, like, I think it was, I think that Super Bowl was like the night before the Oscar nominations. It absolutely was, because there was a lot of like hand wringing by us who were rooting for her to being like, oh shit, will her, you know, preparing and rehearsing for the Super Bowl for prevent her from campaigning? And I don't think she really started the rehearsals until after like nomination she didn't seem or something yeah she like did that. not seem particularly absent from any of the campaign and um no. but it like it should and i mean been... she's nominated by all the major precursors that's the thing too. is all of them not just like the globes and sags but like globes sag critics choice independent spirit awards she wins the los angeles film critics award for best supporting actress she's the runner-up uh to laura dern uh at the national society of film critics she's like this is the resume of uh, she got a movies for grown-ups nomination i mean you know how much we love that uh, this is the resume of an eventual nominee and yet I remember us all being really scared and ultimately justifiably so. I think part of it... It was when she didn't win the Globe, because we all thought, like, if she has a chance in the season, she's gonna win the Globe. Because, like, we know they're star fuckery. They've nominated her before. Like, it felt like the chance for her to be able to have a speech on TV and, like, you know... Here's the other thing. Make a moment of that. And I just want to, like, get this on the record and then we can be past it. Because I've gotten, this, I know exactly where you're I've going. gotten this not in this argument a whole lot, and I think it's one of my kind of frustrations in sort of being uh, talking about the Oscars on the realm of Twitter that we talk it in, which is you know, in we're at the nexus of Oscars of movie Twitter and gay Twitter. I think you and I, and the way that especially gay Twitter will turn things into heroes and villains so easily, and Laura Dern in Marriage Story became the villain then of that season after decade plus of being kind of the darling of, you know, actress Twitter. Right. And a lot of like you basically proved your bona fides by like knowing enough like Laura Dern roles, which was annoying in and of itself. But like. To me, it's also okay. keep going to me. And I know maybe we disagree on this. That is a performance that is, if it's not my own personal number one, it's close enough to it. It is in no way, to me, a substandard performance. It is in no way, like, this is a comedic performance. How often do we talk about right. that, like, that, Os- that the Oscars don't 
uh, recognize comedy. I know Marriage Story isn't necessarily a as much of a comedy, but she is the comedy presence in that movie. Like she is giving you like that is not that is not a it's not even a dramedy performance. Like all she is giving you in that movie is comedy. Even when she's giving you her big sort her of like weird ass tea, right? You know the like the woman the, orders a like, salad and dress, it's funny. not a wrap dress. Uh, yeah, the like uh, bandage dress that she wears to court. Right. It's, yeah, she's funny in the movie. I think it's all. It's not just the. Uh, the homosexual urge to turn things into heroes and villains. Uh-huh. It's also the homosexual urge to resent you doing exactly what we love you doing. Yeah. Because it's like, yep. it was also people wanted to turn her into a villain because they thought that it was just Renata Klein again, which, like, I disagree. It's not. It's not. But, like, people. People wanted to play like they were sick of it. Also, um, people like that movie was sort of teed up for Twitter ridicule in a way that was really annoying. Obviously, like Scarlett Johansson is not everybody's favorite actress on Twitter. Like she is not like she's a she's Dunk City kind of, you know, and basically anything she does. And I'm not going to get into a conversation about whether that is right or wrong. But the way that Marriage Story was kind of broken down into bite-sized memes by people who hadn't seen the movie and then decided that they were going to make grand statements about the quality of the movie because they saw one scene of an argument with no context around it really boiled my blood. And it's like, this is the exact dumbest way to, like, ingest culture is by stripping it of all context. And I know part of that is Netflix's fault for getting cutesy with Twitter and deciding that they were going to make a meme out of their movie about divorce, but (laughs) did not serve that movie well. Sometimes I do think people mistake memes for disrespect sometimes it's just that like some of course it's all bandwagoning but like sometimes memes start out of like passionate obsession and i think that that gets misinterpreted sometimes that like memes start out of inherent disrespect i'll grant you that but what i but what i will also say is the memification of say the scene where the argument scene with the two of them right that then led to people being like, and people say this is a good movie and this is a best picture nominee, like garbage. And it's just like, have you, like, you haven't seen the movie. You haven't seen, right. like, it's just, memes are not movies. You know what I mean? Like, this is, it's, ugh, makes me mad. It's I mean, it's me also mad. the same, it's also the same, you don't know what you're talking about type of thing of people who are like, you hear these stories of like, uh, press and certain critics like trying to get people to watch hustlers and they just roll their eyes at it or sneer at it in a way that it's like that you know yes anyway that's my reductiveness is a scourge (laughs) um so yeah so laura dern was always gonna win though I think because of the positioning and, that like she was yeah. in, she was having a moment. I don't think there was a chance that she was going to ultimately lose that Oscar. And I get but, the resentment that Laura Dern was able to ride a wave of career achievement and Jennifer Lopez wasn't. Like that bums me out too. I it would it would be a different story if Jennifer Lopez had at least gotten nominated. I know a lot of people would have still been pissed on Oscar night and would have been like, you know, fuck this white lady. But Ultimately, 
to me, I mean, you know how I feel with the Oscars, right? Where ultimately, for me, who wins is way, way, way less important than who gets nominated. I am that dork right. who's like, it's an honor to be nominated. No, like, I agree. The nomination is what, like, in, in, enshrines you in history. And I think one of the things I kind of, not to get too highfalutin or whatever with our dumb little podcast, but one of the things that I really love about our podcast is that we, like, with some of when we talk about movies we like on this podcast we it's a little bit of just like don't forget that like this was part of the conversation too this was part of mm-hmm. you know the greater sort of scope because i think one of the things that i love the oscars for i wouldn't i wouldn't be into the oscars if it didn't have the benefit of sort of um a, you know the the yearbook aspect of it the kind of this was what was at least part of what we were talking about this year. And this was part of what was important this year. And what annoys me is when a movie doesn't get included in that, or a movie that I don't think should get included so much gets, you know, overrepresented in that way. And to me, the nomination is the thing. And so, so much would be different if she had just been nominated, because I think that's justice and that is only correct. And that, you know, you know, I don't like bagging on Kathy Bates, but that Kathy Bates nomination sucks. It's too bad. It is. I'm sorry. I hate that movie. I think she's bad in it, and I don't want to have to say on the record that Kathy Bates is bad in something. I would have liked to have just move on from Richard Jewell. So, but it is the footnote. Yes. So the Oscar, the Oscar nominees for supporting actress that year ends up matching the Golden Globes exactly, right? I believe. It was Dern. Um, no, sorry. Annette Benning got a Golden Globe nomination. And Jennifer Lopez, right. So it was Bates, though. And I don't think uh, Florence Pugh yes. did. I think what I was what I was thinking of is that Bates was also at the Globes, and then everybody forgot about her. And then she like comes like sneaking back in at the very end um, and gets the Oscar nomination. Right. Because um, the, Oscar, the Oscar field for that category, Laura Dern obviously wins. Uh, Scarlett Johansson gets nominated in uh, supporting for Jojo Rabbit the same year she got nominated in lead for Marriage Story. I think she's actually great in both of those. I don't know if I'd have nominated her for Jojo Rabbit, but I think she's really good in that movie. Florence Pugh rules in A Little Women, as far as I'm concerned. Spectacular. Like, I just rewatched it recently. She is amazing. We didn't really like people just loved her, and I think like she's hot at the moment like mm. same year as Midsommar yeah so it's like she's having a moment so of course that nomination happened but like nobody ever really talked about that she got an Oscar nomination for a mostly comedic performance like well and again a lot of what I loved about Little Women and the way that Greta Gerwig adapted that that uh, book is how it front front burnered uh, Amy in certain parts and so Florence Pugh really had to deliver for that movie to turn out as well as it did. And she really does. Mm-hmm. Like, that is absolutely... I get the Midsommar stuff. I loved her in Midsommar, too. I would have nominated her both times that year. Um, but, like, she absolutely deserved that little... She probably gets my vote to win of all of them, much as I, again, love Laura Dern and Marriage Story. Laura Dern's probably my number two that year. I think I would have voted for Florence. And then... Are you saying that Jennifer Lopez is on your lead ballot? What's what's happening here? Oh, I mean among, I mean among these five. Oh, among the actual nominees. Like, of everybody. Gotcha, gotcha. No, of everybody, Jennifer Lopez is my winner. Um, and then you get Margot Robbie and Bombshell, a movie that I kind of sort of waved through as like, well, it's okay. It's not great, but it's like, it's okay. I know, I don't think... I it, have huge issues. Yeah, I don't movie. even think it's okay anymore. <laughs> like, I think it's just like, it's... 
it's a missed opportunity. It's weirdly down to conceived. the lensing of that movie when her character has to go through that horrible scene where she like has to flash her underwear at him. The camera ogles her in a way that I think is, you know, just as dehumanizing. And it's like the movie doesn't even realize what it's fucking doing. It's that movie's gross. Anyway, why are we talking about Bombshell? Who in the past year has watched or thought about Bombshell? Well, right. But again, this is what a nomination does. A nomination keeps like it enshrines you in that moment and so i don't necessarily even think margot robbie is bad in that movie but like that's a waste of a nomination to me like that is right and should have been nominated for i would say once upon a time in hollywood like i like she's on my right let me bring up my ballot but like yes she's definitely would have been in my top five for that i would also be willing to say that it's very possible that jennifer lopez wasn't even sixth and nicole kidman was for because Bombshell? like oh god yeah what a dark because thought. yeah it, it was having such a moment she got the sag nomination yeah you're not wrong that's a bummer <laughs> i mean a huge bummer. <laughs> that's a real bummer oh it sucks man. but yeah i i i would wager oh man all right let's see let me bring up mine this was around when i was sort of moving my uh my word doc of the best movies of the year and lists to uh excel and I want to make sure that mine... No, mine was up to date. So, right. So, Jennifer Lopez was my winner that year. Dern nominated. Uh, Florence nominated. Margot Robbie for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then uh, Cho Yeo-jong for Parasite. Uh, uh, the the mom. The mother of the wealthy She family. was my runner-up. I loved her. To Jennifer Lopez. So much in that. Um, but... I'm... Another brilliant comedy performance. Yeah. Also, like, there were some great, like, comedy performances were actually, because also among my runners-up, Tony Collette in Knives Out, uh, Divine Joy Randolph in Dolomite is my name. Um, yeah. Love her so I much. There, there was some really good stuff. So anyway. I also had um, Octavia Spencer in Loose. Sure, she's on my long list. Yep, absolutely. She is phenomenal in that movie that I have mixed-ish feelings about. I think it's a good movie. I don't love it as much as some people do, but, like, Octavia Spencer is, like, that's her, maybe her best performance. She's great. Um, I also had Agnes Dane in uh, Her Smell on my long list. Abso-fucking-lutely. She's so good in that. Yep. But anyway, so, yeah, it's, who were, the, you You mentioned that, uh, that um, Nicole Kidman got the surprise SAG nomination, so that would have been at the expense of uh, Florence Pugh. Right, so Florence gets the Oscar nomination after getting snubbed at the Globes and SAG, which is wild because I never thought she was in danger of not getting an Oscar nomination. Exactly. Well, I think there was... SAG always has something. If somebody's not there, it's like they didn't have screenings or screeners in time right. for something because I don't think Little Women was nominated at all at SAG. It wasn't. It was not. Which is wild because I saw a screening of that movie and you know I am not like high up on the like priority screening invites or whatever. So I saw that movie in like mid-December even like early December. Like I saw it like I saw it in plenty of time for all of this discussion is what I'm is what I'm trying to say. It's also that like in award seasons past we always talk about how easy it is to like you know woo the globes and the right. Hollywood foreign press association for a very specific nomination but like there is some strategy to how people 
still show up at SAG, too. I mean, like, yeah. their nominations tend to prefer, like, movies that are a little earlier in the season, or at least ones that really, really target SAG for screenings. So, like, yeah, here's my... Showing up for Q&As. Here's my hot take. And you know, I I love to throw bombs uh, when the Golden Globes are involved. For as much as everybody wanted to shit on the Golden Globes, especially recently, about... Everything, but one of the things that got wrapped into there was uh, they have they make bad nominations, right? And every you know everything that they nominated sort of got called into question. And yet, I think there is not enough discussion about like maybe whipping the SAG nominations into shape too, because this does happen every year, where an incredibly worthy movie gets left off of it entirely because of things like. Well, it's screened too late or whatever. And it's just like, mm-hmm. ultimately, I don't care why. It's not serving these movies well, right? So fix it, you know? <laughs> fix it, Steve. Fix it, Steve. Fix it. Because, like, I, I don't care. Like, Little Women is one of the best ensembles of the entire year. And the fact that it gets left out of the award show that honors best ensembles is dumb. Like, this happened to Beale Street in its year. This happened to Selma yep. in its year. And it's just like, ultimately, like... At some point, this is going to keep happening if we don't either change the voting window, which I think is ultimately, I think that's the biggest culprit here is in its quest to keep up with this weird arms race of like getting your nominations out earlier and earlier and earlier every year, SAG has sacrificed, you know, actually watching all of the movies of the year. And it's dumb. Well, I wonder... Should have pulled up my calendar to know when the nominations are because I bet that SAG is going to be really weird this year. But SAG, the thing about SAG is that I honestly don't think they're very influential unless they are. Like, <laughs> they tend to kind of fall in line with like frontrunner statuses. That's the one that is like overlapping more and more with the eventual Oscar winners. And part of that is the calendar. But like, sometimes they can be very, I, not like influential, but they can like kind of clear a path for a movie or a contender. I wrote about this during this very year regarding Parasite. I was like, Parasite is going to win Best Ensemble, and that is going to be the like free way to it winning Best Picture. When we talk about the Screen Actors Guild Awards as a Oscar precursor, I think one of the ways, I think the way that it's most useful to us in that like. It is an award in and of itself, and I don't like to devalue it. Like winning a Screen Actors Guild Award is a great honor for somebody. It's a, it's it's right. adulation from their peers. It's arguably the most important award. I know they say that when the actors win at SAGs, and we don't believe them. But in many ways, it probably should be right. It's the one that is only voted on by their peers. So, um, but it also is the award season uh, joke that always is giving. That I will like every tweet that I see of this. The like random 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 statistical facts of bad shit that i was in i'm margot robbie and i'm an actor actor. one of my favorite always funny right always funny but as an oscar precursor which we also you know look to it towards i think what sag is most useful for is being the canary in a coal mine in a couple different ways in one way in which like if sag doesn't go for something and with the caveat that like and we can assume they saw it that's, you know, that's a warning signal. But also, if they really go for something that you wouldn't expect, um, Viggo Mortensen in uh, the, the hippie movie, what the fuck was it called? Captain Jack. No, what was it called? Um, Fantastic. Captain Fantastic. Captain Fantastic. Thank you. That uh, that nomination, where all of a sudden it's just like, 
oh, there's more enthusiasm for this because obviously the line is the biggest branch in the academy is actors. So SAG offers an indicator of what if the if SAG is offering an indication of what the actors are going towards, then there's overlap there. So you get some concrete, you know, uh indicators. But also the SAG nominating body is huge and it is also crucially not just LA based. It is actors everywhere. It's actually somebody who got a SAG card and then like went and moved back to Kansas City. Do you know what I mean? Like it's Exactly. Like, well, their their nomination process is never the same, too. Right. So I think uh, because their committees change, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but because they are a larger voting body, too, this also makes them more populist, which is how you get things like Taron Egerton nominated for Rocket Man. And, like, and you say, well, what does populist have to do with the Academy? But one of the underrated things are under sort of discussed things about the Oscar voting is like, yes, we all assume that everything is being voted on by Barbara Streisand. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of what we envision in our head (laughs) when we think of an Academy voter, right? Somebody sort of wealthy and fabulous and rich and, and cloistered and all this sort of stuff. But like every year we get reminded that like y'all, the sound designers vote on this, right? The you know yeah. the the people who work in crafts categories who have more of a you know in general meat and potatoes sort of taste in movies, and that again and again comes up, and you're just like, oh right, the Academy isn't necessarily a slam dunk for whatever like gay auteur shit that we love, like. Sometimes they right. like a movie that like That's why the Academy doesn't really like Todd Haynes. Right. Right. Exactly. So and I think Which I mean, especially for a movie like Hustlers, it's two things. One is like because the way that it was promoted, handled, the narrative around the movie itself never was elevated for people. Mm-hmm. It made like it made like Oscar snobbery, for lack of a better word way more like it made this movie vulnerable to it because like the other thing is they are snobs and like if they just think it's a stripper movie then it's just a stripper movie and i think ultimately snobbery was a big part of what did uh, hustlers in because it got snobbery from both ends right it got high-end snobbery of just like ultimately this is a popcorn movie about strippers and like we can maybe give jennifer lopez a little bit of consideration but mostly we're going to turn up our noses at it and then it got the sort of more blue collar snobbery of just like i'm not watching this movie about you know is it like is this a movie about strippers or is this a movie about like you know people who want to enforce a moral code on the right right that yes so there is also something we should maybe talk about in that like Jennifer Lopez hasn't had a reputation for being liked, and some of it yes. is all sourced back to this '98 movie line interview <laughs> that, like, she has like come out against previously in some of the things that she's quoted as saying. When you read it, it reads like she's having a phone call with someone else that is like a manager or someone that is a private conversation that, like she wasn't media savvy enough at the time to like not say those things within earshot of a reporter, but like she's dissing on other actresses. She said she doesn't know any movies that Gwyneth Paltrow was in the year before Gwyneth Paltrow gets her Oscar. And this interview was from pretty or This was like out of sight era, right? Uh, Yes, because the interview is from 98. She 
says that she basically calls Salma Hayek a liar for saying that she was offered Selena. She, the, the, uh, things she says about Cameron Diaz is that she's a lucky model who's been given a lot of opportunities. <laughs> it's And like some of it doesn't always read like it's trying to be a dig. And some of it I'm like yeah. there's no way she said this to an interview. Or to an interviewer. Like this is somebody's overhearing right. a phone call or something. But also I guess like have have a little bit of awareness of you know who's in earshot when you're having a phone call and when you're you know it's funny that like either Jennifer Lopez's every phone call back then was that sort of dishy and vicious, or like she picked a hell of a day to decide to run down everybody who she didn't like among her peers. <laughs> um, again, it's from our perspective, fucking delicious and a big reason why we love her. But yeah, I think her, her, she had gotten a reputation over the years of being, and again, we always talk about the line of like how much credence do we put in uh, reputations for actresses and for women of being demanding and you know and diva-ish and not opinionated uh, right exactly and it's like again i'm sure there are people who have this reputation where it's probably more than a little deserved right like you could like i imagine that there are assholes out there right especially if you have money and and authority and whatever, like, that can make you act like an asshole. But I think trying to parse how much of these reputations are deserved and how much of it are sour grapes or people who are not used to, you know, women in authority or yada, yada, yada. We are not going to not love any, like, Faye Dunaway little homosexual boy story. We're going to love that. Like, and yet, and like, on an individual level, were any one of us to be that's subjected deep. to uh, Faye Dunaway right. in person, we probably wouldn't like it very much. So, no, I get it. it's not good. But, like, um, we throw But, like, so long as somebody's not being abused, like, there's no reports of, like, Jennifer Lopez being, right. like, abusive to people. So it's, like, it's... yeah. It's fine. Grain of salt. Grain of salt. And like, uh, you know, so long as nobody's being mistreated, who cares? We need divas again. Like, make America diva again. Yeah. No, I get you. Don't. No. Let, let's not. <laughs> don't do that to me. Um, Can we talk more about uh, some of the rest of the cast in this movie? Because sure, but I think uh, I just before, perhaps as an oh, go well, ahead. I just say before we close the book on on Jennifer Lopez, though, I do want to talk about this current moment of where Jennifer Lopez is at now in her career, because right now, like she couldn't be more appreciated. I feel like this, this post post Oscar snub we've gotten, obviously she performed at the inauguration. She ad libbed, uh, let's get loud into the national anthem, which was sensational. Or was it America the beautiful? One of the ones, I don't know, whatever it was, it didn't have let's get loud in it, but that now it does officially forever. One of the great moments of, uh, Glee cast version featuring Jennifer Lopez. (laughs) Um, what like the watching that live and being in as many group chats as I was in and just the reaction of that being just like, she said, what we were all just like plotting. (laughs) It was fucking amazing. And then perhaps even more improbably, she and Ben Affleck seemingly, and I say seemingly because again, who the fuck knows what you know is real in celebrity world or whatever. But like, seemingly, are back together just because they fucking felt like it, and is great and good for them. If nothing, you know, I am not a Ben Affleck optimist, but 
Neither am I, and I was very reticent about this whole reunion uh, from at the very beginning because I was like, she's better than him, blah, 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 blah. But he seems to be getting his shit together. If so. Ben Affleck-poptimism is going to give me a renewed wave of Jennifer Lopez appreciation, I'm fully here for it. And so, yeah, so I just want... Listen, if Ben Affleck-poptimism yields a last duel nomination for him the academy (laughs) has to retroactively apologize to jennifer lopez that is true that is true it would be it would be kind of a troll to give him a nomination for that but it wouldn't be necessarily undeserved because he is like he's vibing with that movie in the way that that movie wants him to vibe but yeah you're right um ultimately cosmically um that would feel unjust anyway yes let's talk about the other cast members because they deserve it Constance Wu is sensational in this. She's movie. really fantastic. I think she is great. Yeah, her scenes with Julia Stiles cl- in particular like are a runner-up yeah. to my best actress ballad. The slow burn she gives in the scenes with Julia Stiles when she's being interviewed, and the way she sort of she's very uh, she's sort of stonewalling her for a while as she's mm-hmm. narrating the story, which is a really interesting sort of needle to thread there, and and watching that sort of facade melt the more that. Julia Stiles, who's playing Jessica Pressler, but she's named Elizabeth something or other. Um, fictionalized version. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Julia Stiles starts, <laughs> you know, selling Theranos. Actually, Julia Stiles would be a good Elizabeth she Holmes. She would be. Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. That would be fantastic. Okay. Um, but the way that, like, the more that Julia Stiles mentions Ramona and uses that to sort of get Dorothy to reveal a little bit more is really kind of fascinating for like for uh, for scenes mm-hmm. that could be tossed off as like you know frame frame story whatever i think it i think it works really really well actually julia styles actually gets some good bits in this movie yeah. it's like when she does the double take when uh dorothy gives her the tea after hearing about yes, the drugging about the drugging yep yep that's great um but no, like, especially some of her, uh, like, she gets to have, like, the big weeping monologue with Julia Stiles. But, like, I think some of the final beats of the movie are really interesting yep. and complicated um, yep. in terms of what we think destiny is, you know, in these relationships for. Because, yeah. like, there is this push and pull with her relationship with Ramona, especially after all this goes down and she continues to, like, eye roll about Ramona in some of these interviews and, like, calling her a liar and such, like, things like that. And ultimately, she still feels, like, compelled. She's asking her at the end of the movie, like, what did she say about me? Right. Um it's just it's an interesting character dynamic that like you think it could be so easy for this movie to just you've seen movies like this where it's like all the supporting characters around the protagonist are way more interesting right, right, but right. it and it, it's a personal detail that comes from the Jessica Pretzler um uh original article that the woman that she is based on would like continue to contact Jessica Pressler right. and like talk to her like she's a friend and it's like painting her as this person really desperate to connect and well you that's know, one of the great things about the movie relationship. is ultimately the the kind of you know found family kind of a thing which mm-hmm. you know you know I am a sucker for and but just right. yeah the 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 need that these characters have to not only just have somebody have their back, but to have somebody feel familial to them um, is really, is really fantastic. And the best parts of the movie, like 
I love... Well, and I think one of the smart things Lorene Scafaria does to position that, like, desperate need they have for each other is that it also shows how the system uses that against them and pits them against each other and, like, creates these scenarios that are never going to allow their type of, like, union to exist in more than a short period of time. Right. 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 Like... Um... Let's talk about Kiki Palmer and Lily Reinhardt, who, when they enter oh, the movie... Kiki Palmer. It really kicks it up a notch when the two of them sort of create this foursome with, uh, with J-Lo and Constance. Kiki Palmer is a fucking star. Um, cannot wait for her to be a lead in Jordan Peele's next movie. Yes. Kiki Palmer, I love that, like, Kiki Palmer first came into... And I think either of our uh, appreciation with Akila and the Bee, like years and years and years ago. And right. we've seen, you know, sort of young stars kind of have that one big movie and then not really anything comes of them. I think I'm thinking of who was the uh, the young woman in Half Nelson who I thought was so good. Sharika Epps. Sharika Epps. And it's just like. So good. But like, you know, and do we do we see as much of her i, I obviously i know adapero duye like shows up in things she was just in um uh falcon and the winter soldier and she's been like she's working but ultimately sometimes like these these sort of you know young stars of these movies you want this like great you know career for them and sometimes it's just like well wh- where they go and what i love about kiki palmer is she just kept showing up like, she would go away for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it's just like, oh, she's in Scream Queens. She's great in Scream, Scream Queens. I love her. And it's just like, and then, you know, a little bit later, she'll, like, show up in something else. And this was, was this the movie, the press tour that she did, uh, Sorry to This Man? Was that what she was promoting for that? I think so, because it was Cheney, right? Yeah. I don't know. Who it might have been. It might have been for Scream Queens, actually, but I don't know. But like, no, because it was more recent than Scream okay. Queens. Right. It had to have been for this. Then I'm sorry to this man. We've talked about this. I think maybe briefly. Just like again, just a top ten, like celebrity promotional moment ever. Just like the the accidents, the little accidental moments that come that come up in these things. This is why we love the Hollywood Reporter roundtables. I think so much is these little moments of like revealing humanity and just the the, <laughs> the phrasing. It's not just that she couldn't recognize Dick Cheney, which also is like a fun little dunk on Dick Cheney too, where she's just like he could be walking down the street and I I wouldn't Dick I wouldn't, Cheney, I wouldn't know you aren't thing. shit. Kiki Palmer doesn't know who the fuck you are. Fuck you, Dick Cheney. But because she didn't so know who he reasons. was, she could just she could just like have this grace and just be like, "Sorry to this man, it's so good." <laughs> um, she has some of the best line readings uh, in Hustlers, and they're not even like "We love you, Gary" is the funniest thing I've ever heard. And "We love you, Gary" comes from this moment of like cross talking cacophony, right? Because they're all panicked and nobody knows what's going on, and everybody's doing whatever. And then above the din, you just hear Kiki Palmer going, "We love you, Gary," and everybody. <laughs> Everybody fell out. Like it's, it's. That perfect. was when I thought I was gonna like fall on the floor. It's so it, great. If that's when that this movie felt like a fucking rock concert. Yep. It was. Yep. Yep. And maybe that was just the two of us, you know, causing a scene. But yeah. um, I mean, her line readings are genius. She's a brilliant like physical comedian. That part where it's like she's in basically swimona, uh, <laughs> a swimona bathing suit, and these 
absurd heels and she has to like shuffle away oh from the the the, from the, the the er door yeah oh my god yes it's great. um it's great i love her she has my favorite costume in the movie too the like mauve trench coat mm. when she gets yeah. uh picked up uh yes. while visiting her boyfriend in jail uh yeah truly fantastic we've talked about cardi we've given we've uh, given her her moment let's Talk about Mercedes Rule playing the other iconic Ma in uh, 2019 <laughs> cinema. <laughs> Love that she's okay, called so Ma. I don't think we realized she was in the movie until we were just like, we're sitting there and then Mercedes Rule shows up and I'm like, fucking Mercedes Rule. Yep. Um, it, her presence in this movie really contributes to the movie feeling like anything could happen at any time and you will absolutely love it. It's true. Um, I, I just love that like her character exists in this, that she's like a backstage matron who yep. is as much a part of the family yep. as everyone else. Um, Lily Reinhardt gives her an iPhone 4S for Christmas. This is iconic iPhone 3 cinema. <laughs> what did you think of the runner with Lily Reinhardt uh, pukes involuntarily? I feel like that's maybe the one thing that I would have just like, maybe like one less moment of that. Maybe I just don't like puking in movies. I don't know. I mean, it, it for a movie that doesn't have like those kind of level of jokes in it, I'm fine with it to have like, you know, the puke joke in there. Yeah. I think, you know, she, I wouldn't say she's like the least developed character. I think. I would. (laughs) That movie. Well, I mean, like, it it might be a fair criticism. It feels like she's just like the saddest character. Yeah. You know, like there's something about her presence that always feels (laughs) like is drifting towards a certain type of tragedy. Um, Here's what I will say. And I am somebody who, um. It's not that I didn't want to keep watching Riverdale because, like, its insanity did appeal to me. There was just too much Riverdale, and ultimately, like, it got away from me. Um, Between Hustlers and Riverdale, I would like to see Lily Reinhart cast as a lead in a comedy in some way. I think she can do it. I think she's got the stuff for it. She has the least to do here. I think the best stuff that she has is when she's, like, the... I mean, when they go fishing, as they call it, what would she be like the real when she's like reacting to this really like shitty guy and she's, you oh, know, can we talk saying about... how gross she thinks he is, but he's not listening. Can we talk? Yes, that was fantastic. But can we talk about all of the the repetition of my sisters are coming and then they'll cut to the shot of different configurations of the three of them. But it's always Ramona at like the head of this flying V walking dramatically into a room. All of those shots are in the trailer to tell you exactly what this movie is. And like God bless Lorraine Scafaria for not like I could see another director being like this is too um, like. NFL football promo like that level of just like raw raw just like but like but considering what they're doing that's why it's like exactly perfect it's perfect and it's also like again know the experience that you're giving your audience you're already giving your audience this like very visceral like enthusiastic movie your audience wants a moment where you want to just be like fuck yeah like strut into this room it is uh, every single time they did that I was such a fucking sucker for that it was so good all right. Um, Lizzo had her great line delivery of the Usher thing. Ultimately, again, she's playing her flute. I hope that Lizzo has that in her contract 
forever that if she ever gets cast <laughs> in things, it has to show off the fact that she can play the flute. Um, love Trace Lysette in this movie. She has a couple good moments talking about how her, they give that little like cutaway to her, her boyfriend. She's the one with like the boyfriend who doesn't like that she's doing this to sort of like represent that angle of the article. Um, it's our second Met Towley film we've ever talked about. The year that this actress was in Hustlers and Cats. Wait, who are we talking? She's about? like the bitchy mean cat. Oh, and who? Oh, is she the the short haired? Uh, yes, she's got the pixie in the movie. Oh, she was movie. great. Yeah, she cut a good uh, she cut a good figure in that. Um, Madeline Brewer, who people know from The Handmaid's Tale, played the like bitch. When Madeline Brewer shows up, run. Yeah, like Madeline Brewer yep. shows up in a movie. Things are about to go down. She is the chaos agent. Yep. Um, also, I want to mention Stephen Boyer, who by this point was a Tony nominee for that one uh, play with the uh, puppets that I can't remember. Hand but, of God. Yes, thank you. Um, but I mostly know, because I didn't see that show, but I mostly know from the NBC uh, sitcom Trial and Error. Did you ever watch Trial and Error? No. Oh, it was so good. Oh, it was so funny. Um, second season trial and error, Kristen Chenoweth shows up and gives a phenomenal performance throughout that entire season. Um, also iconic, uh, post 30 rock Sherry Shepard, uh, television is, is trial and error. So, uh, highly recommended. I watched an entire season of that, like on a flight from New York to Los Angeles and I did not regret a thing. Yeah. It's a fantastic cast. It's a fantastic movie. I'm trying to like dig through my lit, my notes and see if there's anything that, uh, I want. Oh, what we didn't mention. We should have mentioned right up at the fucking front. Uh, I, I wanted to say it too. I was just like, "This is a podcast about control," because like, <laughs> okay, yes, we we've got to talk about the music in this movie because it's all so brilliant, and it's like for a movie that has like so many needle drops, it's usually the type of thing that we would think is so fucking annoying, especially like these days, and it's all like recognizable pop and R and B music. Yeah. Okay. First of all. Starting the movie with This is a Story About Control is maybe the second time that they, like, Lorene Scavaria is really underlining, you know, the thematics that she does really elegantly it's, elsewhere. It's the but first it works. thing, it's the first thing you hear in the entire movie is This is a Story About Control. And it's well, like, well, and then and, it, like, the song keeps playing and it's that whole, like, march through the stage. Yep. It's shown in this unbreaking shot. So it's like, it reminds us of movies like The Wrestler. Yep. Or, uh, you know, things where it's like physical. Physical, like athlete movies yep. um it's, and plus it's like the idea of just like this not like marching order but like and and i don't want to be as gross as be like a march into a slaughterhouse but like it uh, right you know it puts it in this kind of grueling context but uh and also it, though I'll, like again not to make this an entirely into like a recap of like our personal viewing of this movie but again <laughs> when that happened when that the like screen goes dark and all of a sudden it's this is a story about control. You felt a charge go through that entire room where everybody was just like, fuck it, we're, we're already there. Like, we're already on board with this. Oh, so good. Well, and um, also Miss You Much is used brilliantly because Perfectly. it's like playing yep. in the background of like after they've drugged the first guy and they pulled it off and they're kind of euphoric. But then it's basically used as a curtain call. Yes. Um, yep. Which like... More curtain calls in movies, yep. absolutely. Especially for this cast, 100%. where it's like top to bottom, everybody is fucking delivering in this movie. Like, yep. so smart to have included that. Um, there, I do not need another jukebox musical ever in the world. But if there is going to be a jukebox Janet Jackson musical, it should be the Hustlers musical. 
Um, let's get Shoshana Bean that Tony. <laughs> um, she would be an amazing Ramona oh um, in the Janet Jackson jukebox musical of Hustlers. Um, also, the Usher scene. I was going to say, I was just about to bring that up. Like, not only. It's like the most fucking euphoric thing. It's like the universe opened up and was just like, all along, you didn't, maybe you didn't understand what the purpose of Usher having a hit song called Love in This Club was for all these years. And it was just like, oh, it needed to be inserted into the timeline when it did, so that by the time the movie called Hustlers happens, we had already, like, we had already gotten the foundation laid for us. And then this movie, the song can, like, happen, and it's just like, oh, right, this is why this song has existed all this time. So I mean, all the songs are, like, help really establish this as in a very specific, yep. uh, like, period piece way, <laughs> even though it's, like, you know, 15 years or uh, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, prior you know the movie functions as kind of a period piece and all of this music places you not just in a certain uh very like specific two to three year period but within like emotional setting within that well even just like physical setting like these are the songs that of course we're playing like obviously club can't handle me is playing because like of course it is like kelly rollins motivation of course is playing yep exactly exactly britney spears is give me more this is my shit right here this is the thing jennifer lopez saying this is my shit to a britney spears song what finer pop excellence do you need? You know I love a scene, a moment where a song goes from diegetic to non-diegetic and like a plus version of that. But also I am somewhat reluctantly to say, because I know that like her fans are scary. Um, <laughs> I'm not always the, the, the biggest Britney person. And I will say that like this movie is the only recorded instance of me loving gimme more but i love it so much in this movie just within the context of this it's so perfect it's absolutely like ideal i love it and like as i've mentioned the club can't handle me sequence yep makes me cry (laughs) my only my only criticism also the fact that they used night moves at one point like the one like song that doesn't fit the vibe of the other uh, the genre of the other songs, but all of a sudden they're just going to throw some Bob Seger in there. Also Royals kind of too, but like Royals, that's the moment, like the, the, you know, times. Right, 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 right. But um, that they used a, a Big Sean's dance ass, but not the Nicki Minaj uh, verse moment from that just makes me a little sad is all I'm going to say. The P even t- like the like classical score that's used for some of yeah. the dance training sequences, the like final montage. Uh, I think it's the final montage, but there's a montage of like moments of Ramona and Dorothy together that's set to no other love that makes me cry too, where oh. it's just like, you know, these people can be incredibly important to you at, you know, a certain passage of your life and then shit gets complicated how about it's like but that's still perfect for that time um yeah that you spent together how about the frankie valley needle drop that happens exactly <laughs> and they call her john oh my god madeline brewer coming in to fuck shit up yeah. um but also just like like coming off of you know uh the grandma telling the story her little like frankie valley story and then like the frankie valley story honey um that's such a fabulous scene Hustlers is a Christmas movie. I feel like we've all accepted this at this point. Yes. Dirty secret of this listener's choice episode is we were going to do this as our Christmas movie, I didn't, but we were like, I well. I don't know whether we wanted to say that, but yeah. Um, yes. 
Oh, okay. We'll cut it out if you didn't want me to say that. Um, it's a no. It's it is iconic Christmas programming, and we should turn it into a tradition. She wears a beige Santa hat, bitch. It's so <laughs> fabulous. That's the thing. It's like not nominating this thing for costumes is almost as much of an outrage as the J Lo snub. It's not as much, but it, like it's up there. It's just it's unconscionable. It understands the moment when bandage dresses were everywhere. <laughs> also, like, it created, it. like, they went to the trouble of, like, creating garments for Swamona. Like, not only did we get the notion of it, but, like, we got to see them. And, you know, that's These cinema. are epaulets. That's French for little shoulders. That's French shoulders. for little shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> what a great line. All right, we have been going at this for a while. Chris, are there any last things you want to throw in before we do IMDb game? Oh, man, that's a lot of pressure because I still feel like we only scratched the surface of this movie. I know, I love it so much. This is like, it, this is definitely like friendship cinema for me. Yes. This is like a movie that I tie to our uh, friendship very dearly. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is a foundational um, block for sure. I would pay any amount of money for the cheap uh, necklace that Constance Wu wears that says sexy. sexy. <laughs> like, talk about 2006. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, we'll what be a talking, wonderful movie. We'll be talking about this movie for the rest of our lives. Like, honestly, like, this is this movie did not get any Oscar nominations, but it did manage to uh, become a cultural institution. And for that, uh, and it made a hundred million dollars and nobody was Mm -hmm. making any noise about a movie like this, making that much money in September. It opened in fucking September and did this type of business. And granted, like maybe the September release was also part of the problem that it was so early in the season and it wasn't like the type of movie that like Knives Out became where it's like right. it's the counter programming during Christmas and right. Thanksgiving. Right. You know, and maybe that could have kept it top of mind for Yeah, I mean, ultimately voters. Oscar voters. You never know. Oh, the, this is the last thing I wanted to mention and we don't have to spend too much time on it. But as I was going down the awards tab for Hustlers and and the many uh, things that Jennifer Lopez did win, one of them was she won the Razzie Redeemer Award for uh Jesus Christ. for a previously razzied actress who made good or something. It's like it's such a barf moment of just like not only the Raz- are the Razzies going to be like shitty they when you're suck. doing poorly, they're also going to like find a way to twist the knife when you're doing well to just be like, remember, you used to suck in our eyes. So we're going to give you a redeem reward because like, good job of like finally satisfying us. Like, fuck you people. Oh, it makes I of all the things that they do. That's the thing that makes me actually the angriest because it's just like. Like, they can't even let people be good at things. Right. Just like, fuck off. Like who, like, who the fuck are you? Like, that's my whole thing with the Razzies. It's just like, who the fuck are you? It's so dumb. <sighs> and didn't even win it that year. Eddie Murphy won it for <laughs> Dolomite is my name. Which, like, again, just like, save it. Like, save your bullshit. Like, help Eddie Murphy get an actual Oscar nomination. That would have been helpful. That would have been good. Stupid. Anyway, Chris, do you want to tell our listeners what the rules for the IMDb game are? 
Sure, the IMDb game. We end our episodes with it. We challenge each other to name the top four titles that IMDb says an actor or actress is most known for. Uh, If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the uh, remaining titles release years as a clue. That's not enough. It just becomes a free-for-all of hint and slapping Gary on the cheek to wake him (laughs) up and telling him that we love him. That's right. All right, Chris, would you like to give or guess first? I'll give first today, I All think. All right, let's hear it. Let's, let's, let's... All right, so for you, I went back uh, knowing that Hustlers is a brilliant, uh, brilliantly performed and observed ensemble directed by Lorene Scafaria. I wanted to go back to one of her past performers. We talked about her debut feature, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, uh, starring uh, Miss Kira Knightley. Oh, have we not done Kira Knightley? Wow. Apparently we have not. All right. The first Pirates of the Caribbean. Correct. I'm going to momentarily put aside the other Pirates of the Caribbeans. Pride and Prejudice. Correct. All right. All right. Atonement. Correct. Could this be yet another time that you get three right answers <laughs> and before watching yeah. a perfect score? Yeah. Um, well, so my question is, do they really love the Joe Wright stuff and give it also for Anna Karenina? Or is there something else that I'm missing? There's her other Oscar nomination for The Imitation Game, but that is supporting. Um, what other ones that are possible for Kira? Like, it's not going to be, like, a dangerous method or anything like that, but... Or, like, Laggies, even though I do love her in Laggies. I need to see Laggies still. Oh, it's good. It's, you know, it's a Chloe Grace Moretz movie that actually is good, because it's not about her. It's about Kira. Um, I'm just going to say Anna Karenina. Incorrect. All right. Damn it. All right. What else? Um, Is there another... Is she in another franchise that I'm just forgetting about? Oh, you know what I'm going to guess? Because it's weirdly, like, I do feel like it shows up. The Duchess. Incorrect. Damn it. All right. <laughs> uh, your year is 2014. Imitation game. Imitation really? game. Fuck. Today we call them computers. Yes. <laughs> uh, honor the uh, honor the man, honor the film, honor Kira Knightley's contribution to the film all right honor the man honor the film is what we should have used in the hustlers campaign for gary <laughs> yeah because they love gary they do they love gary you should honor that man all right sorry to that man <laughs> yeah all this sickle. that's the true sorry to this man is it's about gary it's gary yeah that's what she when they dropped him off at the hospital and sorry to this man gotta go um all right for you uh hustlers obviously i mentioned it a little bit um uh, makes me think of Magic Mike, two iconic movies about strippers that are are about the economy, actually. And uh, we've gotten some good news recently that Steven Soderbergh is going to make another Magic Mike movie. Uh, okay, but if it just goes to HBO Max, I'm sorry, but like, these movies need to be in fucking theaters. Like, I know. Uh, how many people do you need to talk to about like how wild their theater experience was for the magic mics. Like just put it in theaters. Come on. I'm hoping that I don't wish ill for King Richard, a movie that I liked, but didn't love. Um, but if that movie ends up having, it's like 
Oscar hopes and dreams sort of scattered by the fact that its release turned it into a bomb when it shouldn't have been a bomb. Um, maybe they'll just stop with this stupid day and date shit after this cursed year is done. Well, they're supposed and... to, but I think because Soderbergh's movies on HBO Max are all set up to not be theatrical because No Sudden Move and Let Them All Talk didn't have theatrical releases. But I'm just granted. hoping that like things change. You know, I'm hoping. Right. I'm hoping. Right. Anyway, uh, star of that movie once again is going to be Channing Tatum. We love it. We love news that Channing Tatum is going to be back in movies. I'm not going to say that I spoke this into existence when I lamented recently on here, where is Channing Tatum? But I'm glad that we found him again. Um, He's out riding a bicycle that is too small for him (laughs) and publicly flirting with uh, Zoe Kravitz. Right, right. All right. So, but for you, Chris, I'm going to ask you to name the known for for Channing Tatum. Well, Magic Mike has to be there. It is not. (laughs) (laughs) What the Fuck. Yep. Uh, does that mean I have to guess double XL? Uh, I'm. I, I don't. I don't think so because like no, less people saw XXL. Um, Twenty One Jump Street. Correct. Now, do I guess Twenty Two Jump Street? Wait, are there any voice performances? Nope. Okay, so none of those Lego movies. Right. Hmm. He voices Superman in the Lego movie. Didn't this show up for someone else? I'm going to guess the Val. No, but I iconically, uh, iconic Channing Tatum butt cinema, the the Val. Truly, you can uh, you can ask for a few better. All right, so that's your second strike. You are going to get your years. Your years are 2013, 2014, and also 2014. If there's two 2014s, one of them has to be Foxcatcher. Correct, Foxcatcher. Foxcatcher, he's amazing. His best performance. Um, is Punches a mirror. one of those 22 Jump Street, then? The other 2014 is 22 Jump Street, correct. Yeah. So one okay, more. So 2013. 2013. 2013 is right before Foxcatcher. Obviously between the Jump Streets. Um... Oh, another Soderbergh movie, Side Effects. Uh, it is not Side Effects. I will say he has five 2013 movies. Oh, wow. One of um, which is the cameo in Don John, but yes. <laughs> it's definitely not that. Yeah, spoiler, it's um, not Don John. Yeah, not Side Effects. Wait, Magic Mike was 2012. Correct. Because it's the year before McConaughey wins. Um, is this when he did that? Damn G.I. Joe movie. Is that your guess? Yes. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yes, 2013 was G.I. Joe Retaliation, but it's not that. So you're down oh, to two other Channing Tatum movies from 2013, one of which <laughs> he plays Channing Tatum, and one of which is the movie that I want from you. Movie where he plays Channing Tatum is This Is The End. Correct. So what's the other the fifth 2013 movie from Channing Tatum. I mean, is it something like uh, White House Down? It is, in fact, exactly White House Down. <laughs> Nobody saw White House Down. I did. Is White House Down, like, on FX every day or something? It's of the two movies that were made that year where the president had to be rescued by a hunk. Uh, it's the one I liked better. So. He's on the trailer in a in a tank top. In a... 
in a sure in a sure dirty tank top. It looks he looks great. All right, well done, good job, good IMDb game. That listeners, hooray us after a one of our longer episodes in a while, and and justifiably so. That is our episode. If you would like more, this had Oscar buzz. You can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscar You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, this is a Twitter account about control, control of what I tweet and control of what I do, uh, on Letterboxd and Twitter at Chris V file F E I L. Excellent. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, both of which the read is spelled R E I D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts a five-star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so if you've already written us something nice we love you gary if your name is gary or even if it's not that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more about Recording and my levels also look good. Hey, look at us! How about that? We're very destiny what about and Ramona. That. <laughs> what about Pariah? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I will. Janet Jackson, Velvet Rope. What about that? <laughs> what about Miss You Much? Um, <laughs> we have to have so many. Times. What? What about? What about Sean Kingston? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Wait, who is uh uh Dance Ass? Is that Big Sean? What about Big Sean uh on Dance Ass? <laughs> God. <laughs> so stupid.